Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in Genesis. And this week we find ourselves in Torah portion Vayetze, uh, Genesis 28.10 to 32.3. Vayetze means, and he went out. That's referring to Jacob uh, leaving home and going out. And he's going to Padan Aram uh, to meet his uncle Laban and procure a bride. And I've mentioned before in the emails I send out during the week that this Torah portion is unique. It's 148 verses long, but unlike all other Torah portions, it is one continuous, unbroken paragraph in a Torah scroll. In the Torah scroll, you'll see spaces sometimes in the middle of a line, which uh, indicates a minor paragraph break. Other times, a line will end, and then the next paragraph begins on the next line, like we do in English. But in this Torah portion, there's not a single break. It's one continuous paragraph. And I think there's a reason for this, because this paragraph describes Jacob's life among Laban and his family, his life outside the land of Israel. And it's a time where God is going to do some serious breaking in Jacob's life. Now, two weeks ago, as uh, I came back after my bout with COVID, uh, I touched on three Torah portions, Leklika, Vayera, and Kayasara. And so I just talked about Abraham, this man who just had faith in God. And uh, even though he made mistakes, he always got back on his feet and just kept moving forward. I think if we could come up with a motto for Abraham's life, it would be, may your will be done. Or, Father, I love you. And Abraham had such a strong faith in God. It kept growing throughout his life. He's called the friend of God. He just trusted God. But with Jacob, I think if we could come up with a motto for his life, it would be, let's make a deal. Whereas Abraham had faith in God, Jacob seemed to have a lot of faith in himself. And God had to break him. And you know, I look at my own life and I, I, I think of lives of dear friends and I think we have this same odd mix. On the one hand, we do have faith in God. We're trusting him. We follow him. We want to do life the best we can to serve him with our lives. And on the other hand, we have faith in our own way of seeing things and in our own human reasoning and our own uh, perceptions. And there's a faith in ourselves that God wants to break. And um, I think all of us have to go through a period, as Jacob did, where God has to break those things in our lives. You know, God speaks to Jacob early on after he leaves home. And he tells Jacob, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have spoken about you. And during the 20 years that Jacob spent with his uncle Laban, being tested, suffering, being cheated, deceived, working so hard through all this suffering, it probably felt like God was a million miles away. But I have to think that Jacob had to continue to hold on to this promise that God said, I will not forsake you. And, you know, Yeshua says, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. And 
because he realizes we also are Jacob's who need to be transformed into Israel's. And Paul in Philippians says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Messiah Yeshua. So we are all a work in progress, and our salvation is a process that begins and eventually comes to a day of completion. In the meantime, we need to continue to yield over the areas of our life that haven't been yielded yet, and continue to strengthen those things that are weak, and maybe break those things upon which we rely too much. And that's the story of Jacob. And throughout the life of Jacob and the, and the Torah portions about him, we see this theme. Abraham suffered some in his life, but his sufferings were minimal. Whereas Jacob seems like his life is one continual life of suffering and blessing. So, let's just get right into it. One of the things I want us to pick up from this teaching is this. There is cause and effect in this world. We all know that. If I drop a book on the floor, it's going to go down. It's not going to just fly up, it's going to go down, and there's going to be a sound, and there may even be some damage to that book. If I trip over the curb and fall down, I'll probably get a bruise. The cause causes an effect. But we can almost elevate cause and effect to a place of idolatry. Because one of the things we fail to see is that the causes themselves are an effect of the great cause, the one single supreme cause in the universe, and that cause is God. Because God rules all. And all the things in this world that we call causes are themselves an effect of God's choice and God's decision. God's precise surgical operations in creation and in your life and in mine to teach us, to teach us to rely upon him. And as we go through this, I want us to see that many times the causes in our lives are painful ones. Um, And as we look at, at Jacob's life, if we recall back to last week's Torah portion, Before Jacob and Esau, these twins, were even born, God spoke to their mother, Rebekah. She says, what's going on inside of me? And God prophesied to her. He says, there are two peoples inside your womb. There are two regimes. And the power power will pass from the older to the younger. That would be from Esau to Jacob. And the older will serve the younger. Well, with that said... Rebecca didn't have to do anything. God had made a promise. He is the supreme cause. But as you know, as we go through the story of Jacob, Jacob makes a pot of stew and uses it to uh, procure the birthright from Esau. But Jacob didn't have to do that. But then Esau, he spurned his birthright. So, anyways... But then later, Rebekah comes up with a scheme, and she has Jacob dress up in Esau's clothes and put the goat hair on his neck and hands and and go in and pretend to be Esau. But that was completely unnecessary. God had already promised what would happen. 
But Rebecca stepped in. She thought she needed to produce a cause to bring about the effect she wanted and that God had promised. And um, uh, that didn't turn out so well. I mean, Jacob did indeed get the blessing. But at what a price. What a horrible price. God will fulfill his will. He will keep his promises. But so many times we interfere. So many times we complicate things. And Jacob is the guy who always wanted to make a deal. I want us to look at something that I find fascinating in this passage. In last week's Torah portion, we see Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau, who promised he was going to kill Jacob the moment their father Isaac was dead. Because Jacob had taken the birthright, which Esau didn't care for much anyway, but he also got the blessing, and that is something Esau did want. And so Jacob leaves home, and he goes to Padanaram, and there he encounters Laban and, of course, Rachel, who becomes his future wife. And for 20 years or more, he spends time there. And then at the end of our Torah portion, Jacob leaves Laban and begins his journey back home. So this one long paragraph is about this period of time in Jacob's life when he's away from home and when God is really dealing with him and breaking him. Now here's what I find fascinating. Esau was born with the name Esau because he's born hairy. It says he was hairy and he was red. He was ruddy. He had a reddish skin. But he wasn't called red because of the color of his skin. He was called red because of his appetite. When he came in from the field and he was exhausted and he met Jacob and Jacob is stewing a stew, uh, Esau says, pour to me that red red, that doom stuff, this stuff that's it's, it's it's reddish. Pour it into me. I'm starving. And it says because of that, his name was changed to Edom. And Edom means red. You know, I shared at the, the, uh, the Torah service last week that our names and what identifies our characters based on our appetites. And um, we'll see later in next week's portion where Jacob, which means heel or grasper, and he was born grasping Esau's heel, his name is changed to Israel, which means straight to God or prince of God. Because that was Jacob's appetite, to be close to God. But anyways, Jacob flees from Esau, whose name is changed to Edom, which means red. And he flees to Laban. His name is really pronounced Lavan. And the name Lavan means white. And I couldn't put his name in white or it wouldn't show up on the screen, so I used a gray color. So Jacob flees from red to spend 20 so or so years with white. Now, red is the color of blood, and the life is in the blood. And when you see red, when you, blood is shed, it's a picture of death. And Esau fled from that. And when he went to Laban, he realized Laban is a relative. He is the brother of my mother, Rebekah. And when Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac, he met Rebekah, met Laban. It's a wonderful story. 
And Jake might have been thinking, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to flee to Uncle White, and things are going to be wonderful. But things didn't work out so wonderfully for Jacob, or I should say not so painlessly as they did for Eliezer. Because if you take Laban's name and spell it backwards, Nun Vav Lamed, it spells the word Nabal, which means fool. And Laban was a very foolish man, very selfish, very self-centered. And, um, and Jacob discovered that. And they almost came into outright war near the end of the story. Now, what's interesting about red and white, you only find the term reddish-white or whitish-red twice in the scriptures, both in Leviticus. And when you find them, they always represent leprosy. Let me give you an example. In Leviticus 13, verses 19 and 20, it says, And in the place of the boil, if someone has a boil on their skin, there's a white swelling or a reddish-white, levana Adam Demet. Red, whitish, Levan, red, Adam. Levana Adam Demet, a bright spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. The priest shall look and behold, if it appears to be lower than the skin and the hair on it is turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is the infection of zaras or leprosy. It is broken out in the boil. And you find it again down in verses 24 and 25. When you find reddish-white, you find red and white together. It's uncleanness. It is zaras. And when we look at the life of Esau, when we look at the life of Laban, these were unclean men. These were not righteous men. They were, in many ways, enemies of God. And yet, God used them almost like the two jaws of a vice to do God's work in Jacob's life. And one of the amazing things we see from their names, if we take the first letter of Edom, which is an Aleph, and the first letter of Laban, which is a Lamed, these two letters together spell the word El, which is the word for God. Now don't get me wrong, Edom and Laban were not God. But Edom and Label, Laban were the hands of God in Jacob's life. These two, the red and the white, which is a picture of a leprosy and uncleanness, were still God's instrument in Jacob's life. Even though Esau wanted to murder Jacob and Laban wanted to squeeze Jacob and get everything out of him he could and then throw Jacob aside as used up and unwanted, they were not the cause. God was the cause. God is the ultimate cause that used these two men to bring pain and distress into Jacob's life so that Jacob could become an Israel. You know, all of us have a, probably a, an Esau and a Laban in our lives. We flee from the one and thinking we'll find hope and the other and only to be disappointed and to see that our decision to go to our Laban, whoever that might be, was foolish because our Laban turned out to be a, a, a Nabal. But even so, even so, God uses that to bring about good in our lives. Pain is never wasted 
if we respond to it properly. And um, the best way to deal with pain is to go through it. Because, as I always say, all pain is birth pain. The first occurrence of pain in the Bible is when God describes the birth process of the woman when he speaks to Eve, discussing with her the consequences of her sin. And so pain in Scripture is attached to birth. And birth is a wonderful thing, new life, new hope, new beginning. But it is always preceded by pain. And if we could just remember this, what's the pain you're going through right now? then trust that it is the precedent and and the prelude to new birth, to new life, something wonderful and good you're going to rejoice over. So go through it. Quit resisting it. Quit trying to avoid it. Because every time you try to avoid pain, you always go into worse pain. That's a principle in Scripture. You'll find it everywhere. So go through the pain. Come out the other side. The pain goes away. But the life, the new life, remains. You know, even Jacob fleeing from home uh, was something that was caused by pain, but pain in Isaac and Rebekah's lives. You know, I, I always say, we always think that Jacob fled home because he was afraid of Esau. Esau's going to kill him. And that was a contributing factor. But there's something deeper going on. If you back up to last week's Torah portion, Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35, listen to what it says. Now, this is after uh, Jacob deceived his father by masquerading as Esau and getting the blessing. And after Esau said, I'm going to murder Jacob as soon as I'm done mourning my father when Isaac dies, I'm going to go kill Jacob. Jacob still stuck around. He was still there at home. And it says in Genesis 26, 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basmat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a source of marat ruach, spiritual bitterness for Isaac and Rebekah. Let that sink in for a moment. Esau's choices were a source of spiritual bitterness, morat ruach, for both Isaac and Rebekah. God used Esau to bring pain and distress into Rebekah and Isaac's lives. Now, what did they do about that? Well, you go down a bit further to chapter 27, verse 46, and listen what it says. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women that Esau had married. I have to pause there. Doesn't that sound just like a mom? When one of the kids really gets out of line, she says, I loathe my life. You know, a mother's real joy is based on her children doing well. And when one of the children doesn't do well, it's like the mom lacks the ability many times to look at all the wonderful things. I mean, Rebecca, she's married to the son of Abraham, the friend of God. She's wealthy. She's obviously healthy. She has servants. They have flocks. She has everything a person could want during this period of time. But because of her son Esau, she says, I loathe my life. I abhor my life. 
That word for loathe is a, a word that comes from the word for, uh, for thorn. She felt like thorns were sticking everywhere she turns, there was just pain. Anyways, I loathe my life because of Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. Quote, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And that is the reason why Jacob finally left home. It wasn't fleeing in fear of Esau, even though I'm sure he was afraid. It was an obedience to his father's instruction. And why did his father instruct him? Because they were in pain. They were in spiritual bitterness because of Esau's actions. So, God will use pain in the lives of others. And that will have influence on us and what we do. God will use the pain in our own lives to promote spiritual growth and brokenness and maturity. I just want us to see through this that the chain of events are orchestrated by God because God is the one who made Esau Esau, a man of field, a man of physical appetites, a man of violence. And he used that man, Jacob's older twin brother, to bring about this amazing effect in Jacob's life. One of the things, too, I don't want us to, to miss is that as we go through the story, we find at the end of our Torah portion, Laban becomes a very wealthy man because of Jacob. And then in next week's Torah portion, we find that Esau becomes a very wealthy man because of Jacob. And even those who may bring great pain into your life, don't be surprised if somehow you see them being blessed. Contrary to what you want to see, God may bless them anyway because they were, after all, God's tools and God's hands to bring about a good effect in you. Just something to keep in mind. God loves blessing people, even people we'd rather not see blessed sometimes. Now, as we go through this teaching, I have plenty of notes for you, and I could just put them up on the screen. They are there. But I've decided uh, you can read the notes later. In the meantime, I want you just to listen in on a conversation. Let's have a conversation together as we walk through the Torah portion and not be distracted by notes. And you can get these later and print them out. That would be wonderful. But we're just going to leave the screen alone for a while and until we get to the discussion questions. And what I want us to do is this. I want us to begin at the beginning of the Torah portion in Genesis 28, verse 10, and walk through this extremely familiar story to all of us, but hopefully see things a little differently. I want you to notice the progression of what happens. And we're going to come back and visit the, the idea of cause and effect. And I'm going to challenge you to strengthen your faith. So verse 10, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. 
Now, the names of places always have significance. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but here it is very obvious. Beersheba means the well of the oath. It's a well. It's a place of water. But Haran is a place of dryness. Haran means dryness. So he's going to a place where there's plenty of water, plenty of life, to a place that's dry. And spiritually speaking, as long as Jacob was at home with his father Isaac, discussing the things of God, the things Isaac had learned, the things that Abraham had taught Isaac, it was a place of great spiritual joy. There was a well, a source of spiritual life. But now he's leaving that, going to Haran, a place of dryness. He's going to live with his uncle Laban, who's an idol worshiper. In verse 11, it says, He encountered the place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took from the stones of the place, which he arranged around his head, and lay down in the place. Notice that Hamakom, the place, is mentioned three times. And next week's Torah portion, Hamakom is used three times in a row in a very similar way. But we'll wait till next week to discuss that. Verse 12, and he dreamt, and behold, a ladder was set earthward, and its top reached heavenward. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Adonai was standing over him. And he said, I am Adonai, God of Abraham, your father, God of Isaac. Three times the text says, behold, hine. And whenever the word uses the word hine, behold, it means stop, focus on this. This is something that is out of the ordinary, something very unusual. Pay attention to this. And three times in a row, in a quick succession, the word hine, behold, is used. I want us to pause at each one. There's a very definite progression here, and if we read through the story too quickly, we're going to miss what God, I believe, wants to teach us. The first time we see the beholds, behold, a sulam, a ladder. It was earthward, but its top reached heavenward. So let's pause. In this dream, behold. Now, now ladders are something that Jacob would have seen many times. What's so special? Behold, a ladder, a big deal. It's a, it's a ladder. And he sees the bottom of the ladder because it reaches earthward. But his eye begins to travel up, and he sees this ladder is unusual because it is extremely tall. It's reaching heavenward. Now, ladders are just mere physical objects. And we're surrounded all the time in this world by physical objects. But I think God would speak to each one of us and say, take a moment, look at the physical world around you. Don't be like a typical sheep with your nose buried in the grass, just buried in your food source, just eating, eating, always looking for something to consume. But begin to look up. Looking up is a learned skill for human beings. And by looking up, I mean looking from the physical to the spiritual. Seeing in the physical, 
the non-physical. And this behold a ladder, I think, is God's way of teaching us that the physical has spiritual purpose. That every object in the world, when it's properly used, is a ladder. That, if we will really look at it and consider it, will direct our vision heavenward. And we'll find out that that physical thing is there to direct our attention to the spiritual realm. You know, when Paul opens the book of Romans, he talks about the sinfulness of the world. It says, for the wrath of God, this is the first chapter of Romans, starting with verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Kind of sounds like the the spiritual temperature of the day, our culture today. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God created the creation through his speech, through his word. That means everything in creation is an expression of God's mind. It is his word made manifest three-dimensionally in the physical world. That means since these are his words made uh, concretized and, and made physical, they are a message to us. Learn to read the message. Whenever I talk about this topic, I always think of trees. They're always the first thing to come to mind. Because we find trees in the Garden of Eden, we find the tree of life. And at the end of the Bible and the new heavens and earth, new heavens and new earth, we find the tree of life once again. And in uh, the first Psalm, it talks about how the righteous man is like a tree planted by the, the waters who gives forth its, its leaf, uh, you know, in season and, and its fruit. And, and um, when Yeshua healed the blind man, he says, I see men as trees walking. And we always see trees as a sp- picture of a human being. It's a, a spiritual illustration of who you and I are. And when you really take a moment to think about what a tree is, there's so much it will teach us, it will draw our eyes upward and we'll realize that a tree is not just a piece of wood I can use for lumber or to grow fruit. It is something that teaches me about God. It teaches me about the invisible realm. It draws my attention heavenward. Because when you see a tree, you see half a tree. Half of it is visible above ground. But the root system, where the nutrients come from, where the strength of the tree is located, is all out of sight. It's below ground. You can't see it. When you look at the person, what you see about that person is what's above ground. That's where the fruitfulness is. But the life source of that person is unseen and it's hidden. And the real nourishment in a person's life 
is what comes from the invisible realm, what is out of sight. When you look at a person, you see half the person, because the other half is invisible, it's spiritual. And we need to see the whole person, we need to learn to discern the whole person. And we could go on and on and on and on and talk about trees or pictures of people. We could talk about the sun and the moon. Now, it's a picture of our light source, who is God, but the moon is what reflects his light to the world. That's a picture of us, the redeemed community. And the sun is always giving forth its light, but the moon is not always reflecting that light to the earth. There are times the moon is brighter, and other times it is completely dark. If you look at the history of the redeemed community, there are times when we have been a bright light to the world and other times our light did not shine all that well. And we are not a source of light. We only reflect the light when we're in proper relationship with God and with the world. We could go on and talk about stars. We could talk about each kind of animal. Every animal teaches some characteristic of the human being and there's something to learn. There are warnings and lessons every animal has to teach us. Even Solomon says, consider the ant, you sluggard. Do you tend to be a lazy person? Then go out and look at the ants. Get a book on ants. Read about them. And you'll learn how to live a productive life. And we could go on and on. We could do hours and hours of teachings and not even begin to scratch the surface of what God wants to teach us through the physical creation. Our problem is that we're in too big of a hurry. Or we go out to commune with nature. That's wrong. You go into nature to commune with God because nature is his speech and it's talking to you about him and about you. Don't just go out to nature to relax and rest even though that's wonderful. Go out there to read God's word that he's speaking to you through things. Take time to truly consider the incredible speech of God that we find in our creation. So behold a ladder. Every object that God's made is a ladder. But allow it to draw your eyes from the merely physical to the spiritual. But then the text goes on and it says, Behold, Angels. Now, the word angel means messenger. Messengers of God were ascending and descending on it. God is constantly messaging us through the physical. He's constantly messaging us. And it says the angels were ascending and descending. Now, you would think that angels, since they're heavenly beings, spiritual beings, they'd be descending first and then ascending. But the angels, the message here is they're ascending because they, God wants to draw our eyes up toward him to begin to see him, to begin to see the spiritual within the physical. And if we begin to do that, then we'll begin to hear him speak to us. The angels, the messages begin to descend to us. And they happen together. And the more we can see God in the physical, the more we'll hear his voice speaking to us through the creation. And if you don't hear what he's saying to the creation, as Paul wrote to the Romans, you're without excuse. Because he's speaking constantly 
day and night to the creation that he's made. It is his speech. It is his word, his message to us. Now, do angels need a ladder? They don't need a ladder. But God is once again teaching us this ladder has a purpose. This ladder is to draw our eyes up to the spiritual. The physical creation is there to draw our eyes up and is a way for us to begin to learn about God and hear his speech to us. Angels don't need a ladder. But we begin to see the purpose of the ladder when we behold the messages, when we receive and we send the messages through the physical. One would expect Jacob to notice the angels before the ladder. But that is never the pattern. I think if I had a dream, I, the first thing I was, oh, wow, look at the angels. But Jacob first notices the ladder. That is always the pattern. We behold the physical, then ask God, open our eyes so that I can see what you're speaking through this. And the second thing we see are the messages, the messengers, the angelic. Now, I'm not talking about seeing beings with the wings. I've never seen an angel. But God has certainly messaged me through the physical world, through my own body, sometimes through health, through work, through illness. And if we learn to read the physical world and all the things that happen in it, knowing that God is the cause of all, we will begin to learn to hear his voice. But there's a third behold. Behold, Adonai was standing over him. And I think the moment Jacob really perceived the Lord God standing over him, he didn't notice the ladder or the angels anymore. They had accomplished their purpose. Now he sees God. He saw the ladder. He beheld the messengers, heard the messages, and now he sees God. That should always be our goal, that God would open our eyes, we would truly see him, not with our physical eyes, but our spiritual eyes. And we begin to behold him in everything. I've always defined the spiritual man as one who sees God everywhere and in everything, but remains quiet about it. He's not noisy about it. People who are noisy about their experiences of the God usually are very fleshly. But truly spiritual people are quiet. Can you imagine the experiences Yeshua had with the Father while he was on earth? But he shares very, very few of them because they're no one else's business. His communion with his Father is between him and his Father. And your fellowship with the Father is between you and God. And if you go boasting about it and talking about it, you lose it. There are times to share. But most of the time, we remain quiet about what God says. We should hear God speaking to us all the time. But we should keep it to ourselves, except when it's necessary to share. Looking up, as I said earlier, is an acquired skill. It does not come naturally to us human beings. We have to learn to recognize the latter, the physical. Begin to hear the messages that God speaks to us through the physical. 
but eventually begin to truly see him. And when God speaks, the latter and the angels really are no longer necessary. They've accomplished their purpose. And God is constantly standing over us. And so what does God say to Jacob? Verse 13, And behold, Adonai was standing over him, and he said, I am Adonai, God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac. The ground upon which you are lying, to you will I give it, and to your descendants. Your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out powerfully, westward, eastward, northward, and southward, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and by your seed. That's the same thing he told Abraham, that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, would bless themselves by you. But then verse 15, there's a fourth behold. But this time, it's not the writer of Genesis saying behold. God himself is saying behold. And listen to what he says. God speaking to Jacob says, Behold, he nay, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. I will return you to this soil, for I will not forsake you until I will have done what I have spoken about you. Jacob would have to hold on to that. Because after this vision, this dream is over, and and God disappears from his sight, it's going to be about 20 years before God speaks to him this specifically again. He's going to have to walk through the 20 years of darkness, never forgetting the light of what he has beheld and experienced here. During this lightning flash where God just shows up, that light is going to have to sustain Jacob through the times of darkness ahead. We tend to be forgetful hearers. And God will do a work on our lives, and we are just transformed by it. Within the next day, oh, did that really happen? And the day after that, well, that was a a nice memory. I'll never forget that. But then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, it can almost be like it never happened at all. We need to remember the things God has said to us. We need to write them down. When we've experienced something wonderful from God, a promise from God, record it. When you're reading in the Word and something jumps off the page, you know this is what God's speaking to your heart here and now. Record it. Record it. Don't forget it. You will need to hang on to this. And the memory of what God has said and what God has promised and what God has done will sustain you As long as you don't forget it, you must hold on to it. Because everything gets tested. When I was sick with COVID, I was, uh, in fact, it was three weeks ago today in the afternoon. Robin was very concerned because I was just, didn't seem to be getting better. And um, she spoke to a couple brothers and sisters who were in the medical field, and, and they encouraged her to take me into emergency. And one of them came over to the house and checked me out, and, you know, you need to take him into emergency. 
Well, Robin knew she had a <laughs> a chore on her hands getting me to go to the hospital because I just never want to go to the hospital. But um, And I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. There's no way in this world I'm going to get in that car and go to emergency room because in my mind I envisioned... They'll separate me from Robin. They'll lock me in a room. I'll be there for weeks, cut off from the world, cut off from from my family, and uh, they'll want to stick a ventilator down my my pipe and 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 give me drugs I don't want to take. And I had this whole panorama in mind of what's going to happen. But then there's that little voice where God says, "Do you trust me? I've surrounded with people you with people who love you." who know more than you do. Can you just trust me? And it's like, okay. So, got in the car, went to emergency. And I think the drive to the hospital in the back were probably longer than the actual time I spent in the emergency. Turned out to be a pleasant experience. And they x-rayed me and and um, took blood and checked levels, and um, they, they, I was dehydrated, and they topped me up, and, and the doctor came back in and says, you're okay, you can just go back home, you're dehydrated. And he says, uh, if you're going to get COVID, you've got the best kind of COVID there is to get. I'm thinking, oh, lucky me. But I uh, came back home, slept in my own bed that night, and... Um, and it helped to go there. This, like, trust God. I need to trust Him. And I remember the very last trip my mother took to the hospital where she died. She was having lung issues, and as Robin was driving her to the hospital, she says, Edna, I know you must be dreading this. And Robin looked, Edna, my mom, looked at Robin and said, I'm not dreading it. She says, when I was a young woman, I was filled with fear. And I spent some time talking with God, and he spoke to my heart, and I made a promise to him then. I would never dread anything again as long as I lived. So I'm not dreading this either. And that was the last trip she took in a car. And that's where she passed away, that hospital, a couple weeks later. So, I want to take a lesson from that brave woman. And never dread anything again. But to go through what God has ordained for me to go through, do it with dignity, and do it knowing that he's the great cause and he has purpose in it for me. There's a wonderful book that I purchased way back at the beginning of my Torah journey. It's by Rabbi Eliyahu E. Dessler called Strive for Truth. And it's, uh, I think, three volumes. Um, and now they publish it in a, a one volume. And it's, it's a wonderful. And it's, I've gone back and reread parts of this many times. And I know I've shared this part with you before. I couldn't tell you how long ago it was. But Rabbi Dessler, this, this godly and, and holy man who truly knew, knew God, knew his creator, talks about levels of faith. 
And he says, we tend to see the world around us as just nature, but he says the whole concept of nature is nothing but a test for the human being. Nature has no objective existence. It's merely an illusion. It's God's speech. It's, uh, it's a vapor. It's, it's something that's transitory, just like the words I say. I say them and they go. And God speaks the creation forth, but there's a day coming when the whole, the heavens are going to be rolled up like a scroll. And this, this earth comes to an end. And God's speech, that he speaks through the creation, is done. It is merely an illusion which gives man a choice to exercise his free will to err or to choose the truth. Nature is not a reality but a veil and an illusion whose purpose is to provide an opening. And he talks about these three uh, basic levels of faith. Four levels. And level one is this. Level one, this is the weakest level of faith, and he calls this nature dominates. He says, people at this level consider themselves believers in God, but see natural causes as the dominant forces in the universe. Yeah, I believe in God, Baruch Hashem, but you know what? If I don't find a better job, we're all going to starve. If I don't get a bigger house, we're just going to be living on top of each other. If I don't do this, I've got to do this and that. And, oh, oh, this has happened, and this, as a result, this horrible thing over here is going to happen. They see everything as natural causes, and natural causes are the dominant forces in the universe. And denial, he, Dessler says, is deeply rooted in their hearts. Denial. Because of them, natural causes are God. The election doesn't come out right. Oh, we're all just a mess. The whole world's done. Inflation takes place. Oh, we're not going to have enough money to survive. Natural causes are their God. They say they believe in God. But in matter of fact, natural causes are their God. But there's a second level, a little bit stronger faith. And that is nature is a tool. These people perceive nature as a reality even though they consider it as a tool in the hands of God, like a pen in the hand of the writer. So they see the physical world as being controlled by God as a tool in his hand, but um, they still don't see God in nature. They see nature as something separate and a tool. But then there's the third level, and that is the level Dessler calls God acts alone. He says on a still higher level are those who realize that nature and its forces have no existence as such on their own. They serve merely to obscure the true state of affairs and provide a test for human beings. Adonai needs no tools. Whatever he wills comes into being immediately. This point of view, that God acts alone, is clear and true. It is built on a well-founded conception of the oneness of Adonai, to whom alone belongs the power and the glory. And that's about the highest level of faith most people ever achieve. But Dessler said there's a fourth. He calls this one the happy few. He says the happy few realize that natural causes are actually destructive because they obscure God's glory. In other words, 
I can look at the trees and nature and animals and the sun, moon, and stars, and I, I see things about God, I learn things about God, but eventually, if my faith grows strong enough, it's like, Lord, can you just remove the natural realm so I can see you directly? Can I just come and stand in your presence and behold your glory without anything in between? And as much as the natural world reveals you, Father, to me, it's concealing you more than it reveals you because I want to see you. And someday we will. And the happy few are kind of surprised there's a physical world at all. Because their connection with God is so deep and so strong and so real that the ladder and the angels are no longer necessary. They see God. They speak to him and he speaks to them. And they just want to embrace him. They just want to be with him. And can we remove this veil? And as I said, The prophets tell us that the day comes when the heavens will be rolled up as a scroll. In other words, the curtain is pulled back. The thing that conceals God's very essence, the thing that's in between us, will be pulled away. And we can behold him directly. And we'll see him. And we'll know him as he knows us. Won't that be something? And some people live almost on that level now. I pray someday I'm one of those. I have a strong enough faith to where I can appreciate this fourth level. But I think it's going to be a while before I actually achieve it, if ever. I'm going to read a paragraph to you. And I've copied this paragraph into the notes. So if you print out the notes, this paragraph is there. I want you to listen carefully to it, and I want you to discuss it in your groups. You can read it together and and talk about it. I want you to put it in your own words. Dessler says, we have to do some hard thinking. We must search for ways and means to strengthen emuna, faith, in our hearts. Let me pause for a second. Question. How do you strengthen your faith? And I think the answer is, you strengthen your emuna, your faith, the same way you strengthen your muscles. Proper diet, in other words, feeding on the Word of God. Not just bread alone, that'll make your physical, (laughs) eating good food makes your physical muscles strong, but eating spiritual food. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Feed on good spiritual food daily. If you're not doing that, something's wrong with you. You are malnourished, you are ill, you need help. Feed on God's word every day. Feed on it three times a day. So proper diet. Second thing, resistance training. Lifting weights. If I have a a 20-pound barbell, if I drop it, it's going to go down because it is strongly attracted by gravity. I want to build muscles. I resist gravity by lifting that barbell, by pushing it up and doing curls and holding it out and, and moving it, resisting gravity. And there's a gravity in our lives, a spiritual gravity, that when things don't go quite right and we perceive a problem, we, th- we right away fear wants to come up and worry. If you want to strengthen your faith, 
resist the worry. And in in fact, do the opposite. Go to the truth. I'm going to resist the worry and the anxiety and the fear. Fear is illegal for me as a believer, so I'm going to resist it. And I'm going to look to the Father and say, Father, I trust you. I'm believing in you. I'm counting on you. And when you don't know what to do, there doesn't seem like anything you can do, you can look to the Father and say, Father, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to rest. I'm going to resist the anxiety that caused me just to begin to run around and do something. And I'm going to rest. And Father, if you show me what you want, I'll do that. In the meantime, I'm going to wait and hear from you. To resist our natural inclinations... To push back means we're strengthening our our spiritual muscles. We're strengthening our faith. And there's always, every day, some thought and some emotion that we must push back against if we want to strengthen our faith. Eat right. Feed on the Word of God. And then resistance training. Every time you stand up, you're strengthening your leg muscles because you're resisting gravity. So learn to stand, learn to walk, learn to resist the downward pull of emotions and fear and ego, anxiety, and all the other things that want us to pull away from faith in God. Resist it and exercise faith instead. All right, back to Dessler's quote. First, we have to learn, at least, that all causes come from Adonai. He is the writer who holds the pen. What looks to us like a cause is, in reality, an effect. If someone is successful, this is not because he is clever. Adonai wanted him to succeed and therefore gave him cleverness. General X did not win the battle because of his strategic brilliance. It was first decided that he should win, and in consequence of this, he was granted brilliance. When it is no longer necessary for that particular person to succeed or for that particular general to win, they will no longer do so. We shall then say that, strangely enough, their business flair or strategic brilliance seems to have deserted them. What Dessler is saying here is extremely important. We didn't think people who are physically strong and fast and have sports ability, they'll be successful in the sports realm. People who are, are clever with money will, will garner wealth. People who are smart will get a good education and, and be successful in their pursuits. But people who are weak or people who aren't coordinated or good with money or very smart, then they're going to be failures. And we look at intelligence and physical strength and speed and talents and gifts as the causes of our, success, our successes. Now, the lack of these things are the causes of our failures. That's not true. Dessler is saying that's absolutely false. But the weaknesses or the strengths, the gifts or the lacks, the intelligence or lack therefore of, are, are thereof, are all God's choice. God is the cause. And not these things that we look at in our lives. They're not the causes. They are themselves effects of God's 
cause. And when we look at the the circumstances of our own lives as being the causes of the things that happen, we're elevating them to the place of God. It's a mild form of idolatry. But instead, realize that if God has given you strength to do work and succeed, it's because he wanted you to succeed. And so he gave you strength to do it. And there may come a time where he chooses, okay, I, I don't want you succeeding anymore in that department, and he takes your strength away. But in all cases, he is the cause, not your strength. God is. We must learn to go to the source. God is God of the universe. And he says, there's nothing else besides me. And too many times our faith is weak enough that we think there are other things besides God that are influencing and working in our lives. But the more we see God everywhere and involved in every facet of our being, the less we're going to see the enemy at work, the less he's going to be at work, and the less we're going to be worrying about everything else because our faith is steadfast in God alone. I want us to have that faith. As I've said many times over the past year, I truly believe that there are dark times coming, very difficult times and trying times. And our faith is going to be tested in ways that it has never been tested in our lifetimes. And so I'm going to prepare us. I'm going to have strong faith. I don't want us to rely on our own human reasoning, and I don't want us getting addicted to comfort, to sichon and og. I want us to know God and be obedient to his instructions because that is where our security lies in following him. He's good. He's faithful. Let's us learn to be faithful to him in return. Here are your discussion questions. And there are the notes that I didn't uh, share with you on the screen, but they're there. You can go over them. Read and discuss John 1, verses 43 to 51, in light of Jacob's dream. This is uh, what's happening here between Yeshua and, and uh, Nathaniel. Is it Philip? I'm sorry, my mind blanked out. Anyways, uh, it is directly connected to Jacob's dream of the latter. Review Rabbi Dessler's four levels of faith. At which level do you find yourself? How are you learning to reach the next level? How are you growing your faith? Third, what can we learn about historical anti-Semitism from Genesis 31, verses 1 to 3? We did not touch on this during the teaching, but it's an interesting question. Go back to those three verses, and I think you'll find there an explanation of historical anti-Semitism. And then take time to read, discuss the quote by Rabbi Dessler in the notes section, what I just read to you. And try to explain his statement in your own words, because I want you to understand what he's saying. It's vitally important. And read it as often as you have to, discuss it with your home group, and then try to put it in your own words the best you can, to where you could share it with someone else. And when you can put it in your own words and explain it accurately, then you really know it. And above all, practice some resistance training. Have a good meal, feed on God's word. But learn to resist the temptation to worry and be anxious and to be afraid. Push back against those things. 
and strengthen your faith. Well, let's pray. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this amazing Torah portion, which we just barely touched on. There are so many wonderful insights and truths here, but Lord, I pray that we would continue to feed upon them and they would strengthen us. And Lord, we wouldn't just be theorists when it comes to your word, but we'd be practitioners of it. Make us the people you want us to be. Make us the people this world needs us to be in the days to come. And Lord, may we always behold your light that we might reflect it to a dark world. And we'll give you praise and glory for it in Yeshua's name. Amen.